Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Co-pilot Pearson and I are having a well-deserved Christmas break from steering the rockets of right thinking. But to help keep you sane, dear citizens of Planet Normal, during this festive period, we're bringing you some of our biggest interviews from our recent archive, the discussions we've had on the flying refuge of reasoned views. Now, back in the autumn, Planet Normal welcomed former Home Secretary and former Secretary of State for International Development, Priti Patel, onto the rockets. Alison and I caught up with her on the fringes of the Tories' Manchester Party Conference. Pretty Patel, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. I'm thrilled to be joining you both. I really am. Thank you. Pretty, on Sunday here at Conservative Party Conference, it's fair to say that Liz Truss made a bit of a splash and you were there with her. What happened? So, you know, this conference actually feels very energised, dynamic. People like me have always been at the forefront of, you know, being with the grassroots, battle of ideas. And that's effectively what happened, Liam. So you saw... We held something called a growth rally and it was good old fashioned debate, you know, party political debate about what we conservatives in the Conservative Party do need to do to actually get Britain growing again. But with this, and this is incredibly important, in a year's time, we could be in a general election. So we want to be able to influence the manifesto so we can have literally a full-blooded conservative manifesto that is based on our values, beliefs, our principles, sound money, free markets, capitalism, the freedom to succeed, all the positive issues around the economy that effectively help the country, will help the country to thrive and grow. Pretty, I wanted to ask you about democracy in the party. A lot of Planet Normal listeners and Telegraph readers are pretty fed up that the Conservative Party members elected Boris Johnson as leader. He was ejected by MPs and they voted for Liz Truss, who was also booted out by MPs and replaced by Rishi Sunak, who has no wider mandate. Do you see a need to involve Tory members going forward more in the process and in determining policies? So, Alison, the answer is absolutely. And I've been a long-standing proponent of this. I mean, I even got myself elected to the Conservative Party board in 2010, because I do believe we need much more democracy at the grassroots. And as you know, my background is I'm a grassroots activist first and foremost. I still say that rather than just sort of introducing myself as a politician, because I started out at the grassroots. I never actually wanted to be an MP. I was always involved in the party in some shape or form. But the voice of the grassroots is incredibly important. And Alison, you've just hit the nail on the head. You know, we've had two democratically elected leaders of our party that basically were then removed in a terrible way, quite frankly, through lots of gamesmanship, shenanigans led by Westminster MPs. And of course, there should always be a golden thread 
from the grassroots upwards to the MPs. And I think that has certainly broken over not just recent years, but certainly over some time. Back in the day, my MP when I joined the Conservative Party was Cecil Parkinson, who was a great MP. But I do remember, and I've worked for former party chairman, I worked for Cecil actually, when he became party chairman under William Hague. And, you know, those were the days that if your association chairman phoned up the Member of Parliament, you'd think, crikey, something serious was going down. You know, they're here to really have a go at me about something. I've said the wrong thing in Westminster or I didn't vote with the government on a particular issue. Now that golden thread just doesn't exist between the grassroots and the MP and the activities in Westminster. And we have to reclaim that. We really do. The level of disillusionment, I think, across the grassroots is really being felt. The Conservative Democratic Organisation is really important in the sense that, yes, we want to promote change. We must have more democracy, a say over who our parliamentary candidates are, i.e. the people that become our future MPs, accountability in decision-making, even an influence in policy areas for the manifesto. But ultimately, what we saw last year should never happen again. And what we're seeing with CDO, we're seeing a lot of people that would otherwise leave the Conservative Party actually register their support with CDO. And we need to keep them because these are the people that deliver our leaflets, they're grassroots activists, you know, they're the heart and soul of the party. Because we are at Tory conferences, you say probably the last major annual conference before the next general election, as well as your rather mischievous meeting with Liz and indeed Jacob Rees-Ramog and Ranul Jaiwardner, former cabinet ministers, all of you on Monday. On Sunday night, I saw you at the CDO dinner, the Conservative Democratic Organisation dinner. The CDO is only one year old. I must say, I felt at that dinner, if the atmosphere at the Liz Trust meeting that you were part of was mischievous. The atmosphere at the CDO dinner on Sunday night was, and I say this mindful that the room was full of conservatives, the atmosphere was revolutionary, pretty. There was a lot of celebration and joy and hope in the room, but there was a lot of anger. There is a lot of anger. There really is. I'm energised about conservatism. I always have been. You know, I have a great amount of passion and belief in my party. I've been around for a long time in the Conservative Party. So I have a degree of a responsibility with CDO to bring some hope, really, to our members. But they want change. You know, we cannot ignore that. They want change. They are absolutely gutted with what happened last year. I've actually been speaking at a CDO event today, and I gave a speech I take the view now, I mean, things are so serious, the challenges we face in our country, the prospect of Keir Starmer coming into number 10. You know, I don't want that. I want a conservative victory. And I'm saying to all our members, we've got to stick together. Let's try and influence the right kind of outcomes post-party conference, whether it's on the economy, the manifesto, democracy in our party. And I I am actually going to try and see the party chairman post-conference now to have some of these important conversations. We can't do it in isolation. We've got to work as a team and we have to work together. But I I want change. And on behalf of our wonderful members, we have to deliver some change for them. Otherwise, politics will just become centralised and too remote. And I think we've seen that in the past with other political parties like Labour, effectively what happens when centralisation grips political parties, you know, you lose your base, you get even more factionism, and that is not good for our politics. You were Home Secretary from 2019 to 2021. We know you tried to take a pretty tough line on immigration, which was popular not just with Conservatives, but in the wider country. Now, on November the 23rd, we are expecting an announcement that the net immigration total for the past two years is over 1 million 
people. And I spoke to Alp Mehmet at Migration Watch today and Alp says that that was an underestimate. So how are Conservative voters supposed to feel that the government they voted for, whose manifesto said it would control or bring down the numbers of in immigration, has actually overseen a city the size of Birmingham coming in in the last two years? So, Alison, I do think, I say this frequently, we do have to differentiate between legal migration. These are people, legal migration and illegal migration. We have to, over the last few years, I'd say three years, post-2019, we do have to look at the fact that we have changed our system. We do have a points-based immigration system, which effectively does enable the government to control who comes into the country and who leaves the country through the visa routes that have been set up. These are legal and legitimate visa routes. It's important to emphasise that. People aren't breaking laws by coming into the country. A lot of them are sponsored. They pay a lot of money for their visas. And on top of that, the immigration health surcharge, things of that nature, and their net contributes to our country. When I left last year, in fact, I was discussing this with some people in the Home Office recently. We started a lot of work to look at the what I call the automatic levers that the government of the day, the Home Secretary of the day has around how you can effectively dial all that back. So it means making choices, Alison, some hard choices. So 2019, we were very clear, we brought in easier routes to the for health people to come into the NHS, health and care visa routes. I remember speaking about that in the 2019 general election. We brought in tech visas, the request, by the way, of the Chancellor at the time, all sorts of routes to basically help our economy and bring foreign direct investment in. On top of this, We've had some pretty big catastrophes that we've had to deal with, Ukraine being one. Afghanistan was just horrendous, the whole operation pitting and removing people from Afghanistan and bringing them here. And then, of course, BNOs. I was involved in the BNO scheme, you know, so British nationals bad. overseas who actually were in Manchester. So many of them have yeah, come to Manchester. Yeah. But there are some choices. I'm not sure what the government is doing. I'm, You know, we pick up bits in the newspapers that they might look at the student route because our student numbers are very high. India now has overtaken China in terms of people coming from India to study in our universities. It was China before. So the Home Secretary could look at that. There's a lot of chatter about dependence. I'm not sure how that will work, particularly for a doctor or a consultant or a you know neurosurgeon coming over here. They're going to come with their family members. They're not going to come on their own. But the government does have these levers of control. And I actually think this is quite important that the government actually speaks about the powers that they do have to reduce migration. Sorry, can I just say, we were told that we were following the Australian points-based system, which has a much higher requirement for salaries and qualifications than ours. Ours is a very diluted requirement, which means that a lot of people are coming in who are on or, or below the average British wage, which is not at all what the Australian points-based system is, which encourages people with, you know, kind of quite se- se- serious qualifications that are really needed by the economy. Alison, I understand what you're saying, but that is not quite accurate for the people that have been coming over to the country. I know your point about the salary thresholds and the government is, through the um, MAC, the Migration Advisory Committee, increasing the salary thresholds, and that's the right thing to do. But through the points-based system, people have to be sponsored by their employers to come to the country. They then have to pay thousands of pounds for their visas and also the various health charges and surcharges on top of that. These tend to be high-rate taxpayers. They're not people on 
low incomes and those salaries that come. Your point about the salary threshold for certain skill shortages, occupational shortages, and there is a list of people where there is an occupational shortage list, that's where you are making the reference to, and there are changes that are being made there. And a lot of this, I think this is quite important just to reflect upon this, Liam, your thoughts would be welcome on this as well, is I have been pursuing or trying to push government when I was in government for a better labour market strategy. We simply do not have a labour market plan and strategy for our country. And I, you know, I've got background as a labour market economist as well. When you look at labour market figures on a monthly basis, and where you see where the inflation is across particular sectors, and wage inflation in particular, you can see where the constraints are and where more people are coming in from overseas to fill those places. An awful lot of that is skill shortage in basic but vital and extremely dignified professions. Just as a comment, why you know, let's build more social housing. The Tories can fire up the red wall, other lower income areas, build more social housing, use that as a seedbed for apprentices, for trades and so on. That has been a big theme of this conference. Migration, uh, as Alison said, has been a big theme of this conference. But the big daddy theme of this conference has been tax. Taxation is now at a 70-year high as a share of GDP. It was very much the thrust, again, of that meeting on Monday where, where you joined Liz Truss and Jacob and Reynolds Jai Wardner. I thought the most interesting part of that aside from the fact that it was just an hour before the Chancellor's speech and there were hundreds of people queuing outside who couldn't get in. It was literally standing room only. I didn't see you. I, well, I did get the biggest cheer, according to Guido Fawkes, was an aside from Rannell. Rannell is, of course, the leader of the Conservative growth group on the backbenches, backbench MPs who want more growth, who are broadly supportive of what Liz was trying to do, even if they understand that there were a lot of difficulties in, in, in how she did it and the delivery and so on. He disclosed in front of a room full of the world's press that the Conservative Growth Group, I said it has about 50 people, and he said, no, actually it's about 60. And a little light went on in my head. Crikey, 60 is the size of the government's working majority. And the Conservative Growth Group, you're basically all saying, if taxes go up at the autumn statement, if taxes go up at the budget as a share of GDP, you guys aren't going to vote for it. You could literally stop the government stone dead because if the government can't get its finance bills, its money bills through parliament, it can't govern. That's a no confidence issue. So I don't think it will get that far. I'll be very, very candid. I, I don't see it as a threat. I actually see it from a slightly different perspective in the sense that what I think is really quite heartening about this conference, particularly from the backbench perspective, is that we're all saying the same thing. We are standing up for who we are as Conservatives. And on the economy, that is the greatest differentiator between us and the Labour Party. We know what that means, you know, with the Labour Party. That is absolutely crystal clear. But if we can unify on this, then we can actually bring about the change that we need to see at a macro level in Westminster, influence the debates when it comes to autumn statements. So we have to be in that space. And also we have to articulate to the country a vision that basically says 70-year high in taxation. That is unacceptable. But we can explain why we're in this situation. Ukraine and all the rest of it. Size of the state has grown too much as well. But we have to have the solutions. We've got to have the propositions to go forward, which that fantastic discussion that we had at the rally yesterday, coming back to the labour market, but supply side reforms, you know, the construction sector, 
building more houses. We cannot build more houses until we have people with more skills in our country. And as a former employment minister, I remember the time when the apprenticeship levy came in and, you know, it still doesn't work properly. There are no incentives. It's got all the wrong incentives. We should actually be incentivizing employers, the colleges, to actually do more in this space. We do have the solutions, but we are actually going to have to peel back the layers of the state to make all this happen and make it work. You were accused of bullying when you were Home Secretary by a senior civil servant, claims that you, of course, strenuously denied. Now, we've seen several ministers, Dominic Raab being the latest example, facing allegations of bullying from their civil servants, which to some observers look like a boss demanding that certain policies are put into effect pronto. Pretty, do you think it's difficult for a minister to get what increasingly appears to be a woke, left-leaning civil service to carry out manifesto pledges? And would you favour moving to a more American system where the incoming administration brings its own officials? So we've seen some shocking things, quite frankly, over recent years. I think it's got a lot worse, Alison, from everything that I've been reading. Also in The Telegraph, you have some very good reporters that are doing some inside reporting from Whitehall, exposing, as you said, the woke culture, but actually deliberate intent not to deliver on an elected government's priorities. That is a massive problem. I should just say for a little bit of context, during my troubles in the department, you know, fresh off an election campaign in 2019, where we won and secured an 80-seat majority, Boris and the People's Priorities, and I, I never tire of calling our manifesto, naming it the People's Priorities, I could see that it did upset, you know, a lot of our civil servants at the time across Whitehall because they did not like Brexit. I think, quite frankly, they didn't particularly like politicians like myself and Boris as well. For a range of reasons, we're big campaigners. We are in tune with the public in many ways. We were bringing in change and it was difficult. It was really difficult. It is a lot worse now. I'm hearing that from a lot of colleagues. What I don't like, and I've also got a private sector background, is that, you know, We are within our rights to ask for better performance. We're critical thinkers as well, so challenging others in the right space in terms of, you know, how we question them, how they've reached certain conclusions and submissions that they put forward to us. It's all legitimate. That is absolutely legitimate. But, you know, when we're treated in a way in which that you've overstepped, we didn't like your tone, that is absolutely unacceptable. You know, we're all working long hours and officials are as well. We're committed. You know, I certainly throughout my time in government and all the roles that I've had, I've been committed to doing my job. I believe in public service. I do this because I want to serve my country. When you have people that really, you know, their heart's not in it, they clearly don't like what they're being asked to deliver. That's a problem. And it does mean, Alison, I think we do have to bring in changes to the civil service. You probably saw yesterday, I think Jeremy Hunt said that he wanted to try and reform the civil service, shake it up, remove 64,000 civil servants. That's a hell of a lot, isn't it? But we should have more power because as ministers, we don't have the power to hire and fire I've got my own views on that. I think we will have to move to a system where, you know, you have the hearings and you can make political appointments and things of that nature because we need to be supported. Ministers have to be supported in delivering the job that they're there to do. Priti Patel, hand on heart. Can the Tories win the next election? I absolutely believe we can. I remember the 2015 election, actually, 
post the coalition, you know, some of us were quite grumpy about the coalition years and all that kind of stuff. And it re-inju- you know, rejuvenated us to literally go back out there and say, we want a conservative majority. We were hell for leather. I think we have to be like that again. I really do. An 80-seat majority is a big majority in 2019. We know that we have to work hard to fight for every vote. There are a lot of people that probably look at us all now and feel a little bit disillusioned, you know, had Boris, had Liz, we are where we are right now you said this you said that a lot of stuff has gone water under the bridge we have to win them back and we have to win their trust and confidence back and that's not easy that is hard work we're gonna have to roll our sleeves up and get shoulder to the wheel and just get behind rishi and really focus on winning pretty patel if no let's say when you are the prime minister of the united kingdom can co-pilot halligan be your chance for the exchequer (laughs) that'll be an interesting discussion won't it alison (laughs) are you offering to facilitate the negotiations she's going to charge commission (laughs) Did I mention I'd written a book? (laughs) A favourite interview with Planet Normal listeners was former head teacher Mike Fairclough, who I spoke to in October. Once seen as an education pioneer by blending conventional education with Bear Grylls style beekeeping and hunting, Mike was ostracised during the COVID pandemic for being one of the few head teachers who dared to speak out publicly about the damaging impact of lockdown. I started by asking Mike Fairclough when his alarm bells began to ring. So I remember being in my car and listening to Boris Johnson on the radio saying many of us will lose loved ones. I was really worried because at that point there was no information with regards to how the vast majority of the population were at low risk of serious illness from COVID, particularly children. And it was interesting because I I sent an email to my parents and said, you know, if it's up to you, but if you'd like to keep your child off until we know what's going on, then, then please do. And quite a number did. Interestingly, the people who since have complained and attacked me for um, having the complete opposite view with regards to school closures and the vaccine rollout to children and masking etc were all against me closing the school because it wasn't coming from on high nobody in authority had said this is what you must do and this was when I first started hearing people like just parrots whatever they were told I'm not going to hang around for somebody to say what to do I'm just going to do what I want to do about four weeks I think after my initial response and reaction that I started to read and hear information given with regards to the severity of COVID and the fact that it wouldn't be a big problem for like most people and Chris Whitty he actually specifically said that that was the initial response but it was uh, in late 2020 early 2021 that I started to comment on the COVID vaccine rollout to children which was all being kind of mooted at the time. So the UK kept its schools closed longer than any other European country except Italy. Sweden never closed schools for under 16s at all. In your view Mike Was it pressure from the teaching unions that kept schools here shut for so long? Was it caution and weakness at the Department of Education? Or what do you think it was? Why were our schools closed for so long? So I don't know the answer to that. All I can say is that there's an excuse that the first lockdown was everything was new and no one knew what they were doing. So they, they just had to do it. I don't like to entertain any sort of 
quote conspiracy theory and just go on with the facts that are available and and it was interesting because um the telegraph's lockdown files was really insightful with regards to all of this and it felt like it was there's these sort of you know really like Matt Hancock in particular was making decisions which were politically motivated i think it's completely reasonable and fair to say that the key decision makers everyone from Boris Johnson to Rishi Sunak to Matt Hancock all of those sorts of people none of them it appears in retrospect were actually worried about the virus because they were all meeting in groups or having parties or in Matt Hancock's having his um, fling with his aide and all the rest of it you know they were saying so so you must all to the general public you must stay in your houses don't leave unless you have to get medicine or food you can have an hour's exercise and just when you're out there just don't stop well it was it was the double standard I mean if if you think about it I mean I look back now can you imagine I remember being in London and seeing this playground in quite a poor area of London, and there were bolts and chains on the playground gate. Now, can you imagine the impact on children? Children were, anyway, they weren't, as we have established, they were incredibly low risk. I should just remind listeners, actually, that the death rate from COVID for those aged 0 to 19 is 0.0003%. That's a 1 in 333,000 chance of dying. Teenagers are more likely to die of flu than COVID. But nevertheless, Mike, we did stop children's sport on Saturday mornings. We locked up playgrounds. Could you believe that was happening? I mean, as a head teacher, obviously incredibly distinguished and, and loving, compassionate head teacher, you must have known what that was all going to do. Yeah, so what I couldn't believe was the unions were pushing for uh, school closures for masking, the vaccination of children. And it's the fact that there were a a large number of teachers and some head teachers as well who spoke to me personally and sent me messages and said I you know really not happy about what's going on thank you for speaking out but I'm not going to speak out because uh, of fear of reprisals so there was that group who I I I think that's that's probably our, one of our biggest problems in our country at the moment is people self-censoring out of fear on all manner of different things there's the larger group who absolutely believed that it was the right thing to do. There are a lot of people within the education profession who believe that lockdowns were saved uh, millions of lives and they were necessary and it was necessary for children to make that sacrifice to protect adults and that's what I feel most disappointed about with regards to the unions and many of my colleagues within the education profession. They saw children as human shields and so they felt it was necessary for children to take on that role. Can you just explain so there were three whistleblowing complaints against you now were they made to East Sussex County Council and what form did the investigations against you take what what were you told they were made to East Sussex County Council 
and to the school. So after this one in, in uh, May 21, I had a second one in November 2021. And the common theme with the first and second one was my opposition to the COVID vaccine rollout to children. East Sussex County Council, my employer, commissioned um, an independent investigator to look into me and I had a whole day of answering questions. I was cleared of any wrongdoing because it was concluded that I have a right to lawful free speech. The third one, which came in November 2022, um, the uh, complainants again were saying that I was um, spreading medical misinformation. They also said that I was voicing anti-government messages on social media. My mission was to try and communicate in a way where people who were, so parents of children who were undecided could make an informed decision. That was my mission. I think I achieved that because I haven't had any parents come up to me and say that they disagreed This third complaint uh, was much more sinister because they raised the complaint under PREVENT, which is the government's counter-extremism department. I was also reported to the Department for Education counter-extremism division and to Ofsted and to the Children's Commissioner, etc. The um, counter-disinformation units and, you know, the 77th Brigade, etc. were eyes off your traditional you know, Islamic terrorists and all the rest of it, and on to domestic citizens who were questioning government policy on COVID. So there was a feel at that time uh, that if you dared question what was going on, that you would be regarded as a dangerous extremist. For the third time, I was cleared of any wrongdoing in relation to the allegation. Uh, And each time... East Sussex County Council at the end of each investigation would say you have a right to free speech on this matter but then they would then entertain another whistleblowing complaint about exactly the same thing and this was the bit which kind of pushed me sort of over the edge as it were really because I you know I've never been in that position before and I just thought wow what's going to happen is you know am I going to get my door kicked down by the anti-terror police or something my kids taken away I've got a young family I've got four kids 26 year old and 19 year old and two six year old uh, twin daughters and, and my wife in the house and it was just like this is really really extreme you know I had a great reputation before it's like you know like 19 years as head teacher 30 years in the profession and bearing in mind the things that I've done at the school have been previously so controversial that I would have expected people to have complained <laughs> and maybe in retrospect think well you know yes I was just I was just going to come to that so you resigned as headmaster of West Rise in September alleging serious breaches of contract by East Sussex County Council you say you consider yourself to be constructively dismissed did you feel you were unable to stay on yeah, I said to East Sussex County Council, right, I can understand if I were to, if they or the school were to receive a complaint about something else, they would need to investigate it, you know. But I said to them, if you are were to receive the identical complaint with regards to my campaigning about the COVID vaccine rollout to children, bearing in mind that I, 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 I feel that that's 
possibly going to come back again. I think it's it's such a great role, a great business model for Big Pharma and everyone else. I can't see why they wouldn't want to continue it. So I've all, you know I've wanted to continue to campaign and to uh, exercise my right to lawful free speech on this matter. And I said, could you just say, you know, guarantee that if you've got that exact same. Um, uh, uh, complaint bearing in mind on three occasions you've told me that I have a right to free speech on that matter will you not uh, investigate me and they said that we're we're unable to to say that we will not un- investigate you so this was essentially using the uh, in my view the 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 whistleblowing process to silence disapproved of views I have a right to l- lawful free speech this is clearly in in my view discrimination and this is now the basis of a claim you're taking to an employment tribunal in November 2024, that's next year. What are you hoping to get out of that? I've got the brilliant support of the Free Speech Union and uh, there's uh, the Chief Legal Counsel there, Bryn Harris, has been great. I've also got the most amazing barrister on side called Paul Diamond, who is the leading civil liberties barrister in the country. This is a case which could set a precedent. In order to take it to the tribunal, I've had to clarify what it is that I've been discriminated against. So I've had to clarify and describe what my philosophical belief is. And my philosophical belief is as follows. I have a strongly held philosophical belief in the importance of critical thinking, freedom of speech and safeguarding children. Uh, I think that's particularly important now because what that basically means is I think about things and then I talk about things in the interest of safeguarding children. And if you look at what's happening in the education sector at the moment, particularly around gender ideology, or even going back to what I've been campaigning about throughout the pandemic, so, you know, masks and the the school closures and vaccine rollout to children, etc., etc. There are lots and lots and lots of colleagues, as I've said, who know that there are lots of things wrong and who think about who think about these things and privately say, oh, I don't really agree with what's going on, but they don't say anything about it, which is that free speech aspect. So they might be critical thinkers, but they don't exercise their right to lawful free speech. And they certainly don't then fulfil their legal obligation to safeguard children against harm. This case could set a precedent moving forward for people in the workplace with regards to free speech. It's a very, very important one for protecting children. Mike, were you surprised or disappointed by the failure of these organisations which are designed for children's welfare to speak out at the time. And not only that, but Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, I nearly went through the roof. She said recently that they couldn't rule out closing schools again in the future. I thought, are you out of your mind, woman? Were you disappointed? It's disappointing. It's also it's virtue signalling. So um, it didn't take a rocket scientist to work out that if you close down the economy uh, repeatedly, that it's going to cause economic ruin and harm the most vulnerable in society, including children. What they've done is they've failed in their duty. I, th- I apply that to Ofsted, to the children's charities. People's need for self-preservation 
has trumped their civic duties. The majority of people, if they are told by an authority figure to stay silent and not say anything, they that's what they'll do. And they'll just think, well, someone else can sort it out. And I think that's one of the, the biggest things that we need to work on and something that I'm kind of thinking about and writing about at the moment, actually. Mike, here on Planet Normal, we think you're a warrior and we wish you well in your employment tribunal and we'll talk to you about that later. I think it's hugely important for teachers to have the right to speak up on behalf of children. We know you're the most fantastic head and I sincerely hope you won't be lost to education in the future because we really need inspirational teachers like you. Mike Fairclough, thank you so much for coming on Planet Normal. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.